0: For most of my childhood Christmas Eve's, my, my family would drive the 45 minutes to Mobile, Alabama to spend the evening with my mom's aunt and uncle. Stuck in the rear-facing backseat of a station wagon for 45 minutes feels like an eternity to a kid. To make matters worse, my great aunt and uncle's home was not a hospitable place for energetic little boys. And while I know this is incorrect, in my memory, everything inside that house was made of glass. It was not a fun time. And on Christmas Eve, with the expectation of Christmas morning already dominating my mind, those evenings were insufferably long. They felt like an eternity. And it always felt like the drive back to Pensacola would never end. For kids, time seems to drag, right? Those of us who are now adults understand this. And on evenings like Christmas Eve, time seemed to stop. Throw in suffering, perceived suffering, I wasn't really suffering, and there were moments when I wondered if the clock wasn't turning backwards. On the Christmas Eves in Mobile, Alabama, it felt like the promise of Christmas's arrival was going to be broken. And recognizing that the stakes were much higher, many Christians in the first century dealt with similar existential woes regarding the slowness of time. After Christ ascended back to heaven, many of Jesus's followers believed that he was going to return soon, as in within their lifetime. But as the years turned into decades, it became obvious that their timeline wasn't the same as God's timeline. As the apostles began preaching patience, false teachers began to pop up, sowing seeds of doubt that Jesus was ever going to return. And this is a situation that Peter is confronting in the letter we call 2 Peter False teachers are preying on immature Christians' understanding of Jesus' promise to return and are falsely teaching that there is no coming judgment. And so, according to the false teachers, how you live, how how we live, doesn't really matter because Jesus isn't coming back, which, which means there is no final judgment. The false teachers are giving you permission to live in a manner that makes you feel happy and fulfilled however you want to define it. Peter, of course, is having none of that. In chapter 1, Peter stresses that living godly lives, virtuous moral living as defined by God, is important because Jesus is coming back. And the power to live godly lives comes from having knowledge, true relational knowledge of Jesus Christ. And Peter's able to stress this because he reminds us that the Scriptures are trustworthy, as are the apostles' witness. Peter himself saw a glimpse of Jesus and His eternal power and glory at the transfiguration. In chapter 2, Peter shifts gears and and writes a scathing polemic against the false teachers. He explains that God will judge the false teachers. Look back at history, Peter implores. The flood, Sodom and Gomorrah, the the punishment of the fallen angels. If you don't believe that God judges the wicked, history proves you wrong. However, in chapter 2, Peter also holds out the glorious promise that God protects and saves his own. And now in chapter 3, Peter gets back to his personal plea to the letter's recipients. He switches pronouns from the they that dominated chapter 2 back to the you of chapter 1. In fact, he begins referring to the letter's recipients as beloved. And this is what we're going to look at this morning. Peter's plea to those whom he loves in Christ Jesus. And we're going to look at this passage, 2 Peter Chapter 3, verses 1-13, through 13, under three headings. One, remember to heed God's word. Two, remember God's patience. And three, remember to live holy lives. So point number one, remember to heed God's word. If you're not already there, please turn to 2 Peter 3, which can be found on page 1019 in the Bibles provided. We're going to begin by reading verses 1 through 7. 2 Peter 3, verses 1 through 7. Please follow along as I read. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are, are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Peter begins this letter by, by reminding his readers of the victory over sin that a relationship with Jesus brings. The, the man who sang into the waves when he took his eyes off of Jesus is urging us to remain focused on Jesus. That the command for us to pursue holiness, right living as defined by God, finds victory through faith in Jesus. Growing in our relationship with Jesus not only produces fruit, it is the sweetest fruit. The command to know our Savior is how Peter begins this letter. In chapter 2, he moves into that sharp, angry polemic directed at the false teachers, but with the important reminder that God saves His own. And then with chapter 3, and circling back to the end of chapter 1, where he argued that the apostles' witness of Jesus and the Old Testament prophets refute the heresies of the false teachers, that that Jesus is indeed coming back, Peter provides the antidote to our fears, doubts, and struggles. And we're going to look at this more under point 2, But but Christian, if, if you're weary, if you're tempted to believe that God has forgotten about your pain and your struggles with sin, throw yourself into the Word. Remind yourself what Jesus has done for you. Remind yourself of how Jesus fulfilled the promises God made in the Old Testament. Remind yourself of the Apostle's witness of Jesus. You want to know why Peter sounds so angry in the previous chapter? It's because he loves God's people, and he longs for us to grow in grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. He uses the word beloved in verse 1 of chapter 3. But God's people are being preyed on by those who seek to destroy our faith. And immersing ourselves in the word of God is one of the primary means of grace that God has gifted us to strengthen our faith. Brothers and sisters in Christ, do not neglect reading the Bible. We can't expect victory over sin. We can't expect our faith to grow if we're not reading the Bible. Whether we like it or not, Whether we think it sounds legalistic or not, one of the primary ways that God has ordained to sanctify us is through the reading of His Word. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Peter is urging us to remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior given through the apostles. And unless you've memorized the entire Bible, you're going to have to read it to obey Peter's gracious command here. So, specifically in this context, what are the predictions of the holy prophets that Peter is calling us to remember? And in referencing the Old Testament prophets, Peter is calling us to remember the prophecies concerning the final day of the Lord. It's what he's challenging the false teachers about. There are several references in the Old Testament about that final day, and one such reference is found in Isaiah 13. So, so keeping your place in 2 Peter, please turn to Isaiah 13, page 576, and the Bible's provided. Isaiah 13. Page 576. Old Testament prophecy usually contains two horizons. That means that the prophecy points to two events and that the first event foreshadows the climatic final event. Theologian Louis Burkhoff explains it like this. The element of time is rather negligible quantity in the prophets. The prophets compressed great events into a brief space of time, brought momentous movements close together in a temporal sense, and took them in at a single glance. This is called the prophetic perspective. The prophets looked upon the future as the traveler does upon a mountain range in the distance. He fancies that one mountaintop rises up right behind the other, when in reality... They are miles apart. And we see this here in Isaiah 13. So, so look at verse 1. The oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos saw. So on one level, looking at one of Berkhoff's mountain peaks, as it were, Isaiah is prophesying the conquest of the ancient city of Babylon. So skipping down to verse 6, we read, Wail, for the day of the Lord is near, as, destu- as destruction from the Almighty it will come. And then picking back up in verse 10, We see this prophecy spread out beyond just Babylon to encompass the whole cosmos. The stars, the sun, and moon will cease to give light. Verse 11, I will punish the world. Verse 13, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken out of its place. Isaiah 13 was partially fulfilled when Babylon was conquered by the Persians. But although the Babylonians suffered greatly at the hands of the Persians, the city was never destroyed the way Isaiah prophesies. By the first century AD, the once proud city had been diminished to little more than a tribal village. And over the years and into the Muslim conquest in the 7th century, people lived on top of the ancient city's decaying ruins. And if you want, you can visit the decaying ruins of Babylon. Isaiah's prophecy has not been fulfilled yet. And while there, you'll probably stay in a hotel in Halal, an Iraqi city, which its inhabitants live where Babylonians once lived. However, if you look at verses 20-22 through in Isaiah 13, Isaiah makes clear that not only will Babylon not be inhabited, but no shepherd will make their flocks lie down there. So if we were to take the time to read Revelation 18, we would read about the future fall of Babylon. What's more, reading through the entire Bible, we pick up on the thematic element that casts Babylon as the opposite of the city of God. In prophecy, while one level points to the ancient city of Babylon, the broader level points to the rebellious world when speaking of Babylon. Isaiah 13 is also foretelling an event that is still in the future. So so turn back to 2 Peter, where Peter is calling us to remember the prophecies, like in Isaiah 13, of the day of the Lord, when Jesus will return to punish the wicked and reward those who are His. And he's calling us to remember as a means for us to combat the scoffers. To to protect our own heart. Because the scoffers are motivated by their sinful desires. And they use our sinful desires to tempt us. The end of verse 3. Following their own sinful desires. They deny the return of Jesus in order to free themselves to live however they want. And living however we want sounds attractive to us too. At least from time to time. No one in this room is fully sanctified yet. So circling back to Peter's admonishment to remember the prophets and the commands of Jesus throughout the Bible, the coming day of the Lord has ethical implications. And this is largely what Peter was getting at in chapter 1 when he commands believers to make the qualities listed in verses 5-7 through of chapter 1 their own, to pursue holiness. Peter tells us that we are to live in light of the reality that Jesus is coming back. In contrast, the scoffers... Those who deny the return of Jesus want to pursue the lust of their flesh. And so, according to 3, verse 4, they say, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. To justify their immorality, they're saying, look, going all the way back to our ancient ancestors, we've been warned about this day of the Lord and nothing's happened. The world keeps going on without any evidence of divine intervention, and there's no reason to believe that that's going to change. Peter, of course, quickly transitions to a refusion of the false teacher's scoffing. So moving into verse 5, notice Peter's strong accusation that they deliberately overlook this fact. The false teachers know what the Bible teaches. But because they love their sin more than they love Jesus, they deny what they know. Because combined with Peter's words in verse 3 that they are following their own sinful desires, we, we see the motivation behind the false teacher's heresy is not intellectual. Intellectual but a rejection of holiness and the moral commands in the Bible. And with these next three verses, 5 through 7, Peter points out that God has indeed intervened in the course of human history. For starters, the world is not eternal. God spoke it into existence. We we should note that Peter is not writing a robust doctrine of creation with verse 5. We need to resist the temptation to get hung up on the words and the earth was formed out of water and through water. If we wanted, we could tie ourselves into linguistic knots, attempting to discern what Peter means by those words. And there are plenty of people who do tie themselves into linguistic knots, mostly for the purpose of discrediting the Bible. However, there is a simple and, I believe, an obvious literary answer. Rhetorically, Peter is drawing from the creation account to set up a somewhat poetic parallel in verses 6 and 7. Here's what I mean. In the creation account found in Genesis, Moses introduces us to God creating the heavens and the earth. In verse 2 of Genesis 1, Moses speaks of the earth, then darkness, and then water. In verse 3, Moses begins providing more details about God's creative acts. In verse 6, the expanse separates the waters, the waters below and the waters above. In verse 9, God separates the waters below and creates dry land. So so here in 2 Peter, Peter isn't articulating an ancient cosmology of primary elements from which everything is created. He has simply and briefly explained that God did intervene, and His first act of intervention was the creation of everything. And Peter highlighted the starring role that water played in the creation account found in Genesis 1. And he highlights water because in verse 6, he immediately pivots to pointing out how God used water in another extraordinary act of intervention in the world. God destroyed the world with water. And I want to pause here for a second and reiterate an application from the sermon on 2 Peter 2. There is great pressure exerted on Christians today to explain the marvelous supernatural historical events recorded in the Bible. We're encouraged to rationalize away the miraculous by coming up with natural explanations, which leads me to believe they don't understand what the word miracle means. Sadly, much of the pressure is coming from professing Christians, even from some within the Reformed evangelical community. But as Paul points out in 1 Corinthians, our faith, Christianity, is dependent on a miracle. The miracle of the resurrection of Jesus. Christian, if if you believe that Jesus rose from the dead, and if you're a Christian, you, you have to believe that, why would you be embarrassed to publicly admit that you believe that miracles like the flood happened? Is someone coming back to life after having been dead less strange and supernatural than a flood destroying the world? Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Peter publicly declared in this letter that he believes the flood happened. So don't be embarrassed to to own and admit that these things actually happened because they did. And Peter declares this to remind us that God has acted in history. Specifically, he's acted to punish the wicked and the scoffers. What's more, according to verse 7, there is coming a day when God is going to speak another judgment. The entire cosmos is going to be burned up and dissolved, to use Peter's words we'll we'll see in verse 10. In fact, and look at the end of verse 7. On the final day of judgment, the ungodly will be destroyed. Those who persist in their rebellion against God, those who believe that they get to determine right and wrong, those who refuse to bow the knee to God through faith in Jesus, are under God's just and righteous wrath and will be punished and heeding Peter's admonition to remember the predictions of the holy prophets. Let's hear from two prophets about what's going to happen to those who scoff at the notion that God will judge the wicked. So Zephaniah 1.12, At that time I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the men who are complacent, those who say in their hearts, The Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. And then Malachi 2.17, You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, How have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? So brothers and sisters, make no mistake. God judges the wicked. Don't be lulled into complacency by those who deny that Jesus would ever condemn someone to hell. Don't buy into the lie that those who do evil will escape God's wrath. And Christian... Peter's encouragement to remember the predictions of the holy prophets and commandments of Jesus given by the apostles should be that, an encouragement. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we may be beset by sin, and we may be discouraged by the evil around us, but Jesus is coming back to destroy all evil and sin. Our hope in the gospel is not in vain. And this brings us to our second point. Remember God's patience. Please follow along as I read verses 8 through 10. the study of last things, the end times. Eschatology can be divisive. It shouldn't be, but it often is. Interpreting passages about the end times in the Bible can be tricky, and it's easy to become mired in attempting to figure out the specifics. And many godly men and women disagree about some of the specifics. And we need to keep that in mind when we discuss eschatology with each other. Members of Arlington Baptist Church disagree with each other about some of the specifics. So when discussing this topic with each other, let's do so with charity and humility. Even in disagreement, let's be thankful that our brother or sister in Christ is taking the Bible seriously and through the power of the Holy Spirit doing his or her best to rightly interpret passages that talk about the end times. Our church's statement of faith is written the way it is on purpose. It says, we believe that the end of the world is approaching, that at the last day Christ will descend from heaven and raise the dead from the grave to final retribution that a solemn separation will then take place, that the wicked will be adjudged to endless punishment and the righteous to endless joy. It's written that way so that all believers can affirm it. Being part of this church, worshiping together as a church family, does not require require agreement on certain specifics about the end times outside of the affirmation that Jesus is coming back, the dead will be resurrected, the righteous rewarded for all eternity, and the wicked punished for all eternity. So, So let's be charitable during discussions about the end times. Now, for those of you hoping to hear some specifics about eschatology in this sermon, sorry to disappoint you, but I'm not going to give any specifics beyond what our church's statement of faith gives. Because frankly, here in our text, Peter doesn't give any specifics beyond what our church's statement of faith gives. Or, more appropriately, our church's statement of faith doesn't give any specifics beyond what Peter gives here in 2 Peter. And Peter's concern isn't with the specifics anyway. Peter's concern is with bolstering the faith of his readers. The false teachers repudiated the gospel out of the desire to justify their sinful lifestyles. Throughout this letter, Peter is eager to remind his readers that God's word is true and that the scoffers are lying. He wants to fight back against the false teachers' influence. Peter's also concerned that the false teachers might be confusing Christians who desire to be faithful. We can see Peter's pastoral concern here, and his pastoral concern applies to us too. At the top of the sermon, I mentioned that many of the first century Christians believed that Jesus was going to return during their lifetime. But as the years dragged on, as as persecution ramped up and more and more Christians were being martyred, doubt began to creep in. And if we're being honest, many of us struggle with the same thing, right? I mean, we look around at the suffering in the world, the the ravages of sin. We we look at our own failings, our own struggles with sin and, and, and question whether Jesus is ever going to come back. I think this is one of the reasons why many well meaning Christians spend so much time trying to interpret world events in light of Jesus' return. They treat the world events as clues that tell them that it's happening soon. When I was a little boy, I heard frequently that I would most likely never go to college because Jesus was going to come back first. Well, I've been to college three times now. (laughs) Don't ask me how many of them I finished. And this isn't new. Heading into 1000 A.D., Christians were convinced that Jesus was going to return. Frankly, because of a misunderstanding about this passage, but we'll get to that in a second. Look, I empathize with the desire to make the claim. Looking at world events, it's obvious that Jesus is coming back soon. It's, It's a way to push back on the doubts and fears that many of us have. Even while preparing this sermon, I was tempted to doubt. I found myself wondering, why is it taking so long? And that doubt reveals a lack of understanding about God or a refusal to submit to who God is. This is why Peter references Psalm 90 verse 4. Psalm 90 verse 4 says, For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. The the context of Psalm 90 is the contrast between the frailty and temporality of humans and the eternality of God. Verse 2 of Psalm 90 says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting you are God. Followed by a recognition in verse 3 of the mortality of humans. And this psalm, which is a prayer of Moses, has the well-known supplication. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Moses acknowledges the brevity of our life and asks God to give grace to His people and not allow us to waste the short time that He does give us in this life. And Moses does so because he desires for God's people to fear God and to walk in God's righteousness and pursue holiness. Themes we see in 2 Peter. The the contrast between the Creator and His creation is on full display in Psalm 90. And Peter is using this well-known psalm to remind his readers of God's glorious majesty and our frailty. Our lives, our, our days are marked by failings. Our health fails. We fail mentally. We fail morally. Even though Jesus suffered and died for us, we still fail to obey His commandments. We fail to love God and love others. and Instead, we love ourselves. We use this short life for our benefit and our gain. We treat others like objects who exist for our pleasure. We act as if we're better than others because of their ethnicity, their, their economic status, or their education. Instead of using the days God has given us to get wisdom, seeking to serve and honor God, we live as if we believe that we're the glorious one instead of the frail, sinful creatures that we are. You see, this colloquialism of one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day is simply humans' feeble attempt to provide a word picture of God's eternality. The ancients used a thousand years as a poetic placeholder for a really long time so long, in fact, we can't number it. And Peter's use of the colloquialism in reference to God should cause us to catch a glimpse of the chasm that exists between God's glory and our weakness. And that should be an encouragement. We may be frail and prone to failure, and we are, But you know who's not? Our Father in Heaven. Peter is reminding us that even though we may be struggling, even though we may be in pain, even though it may seem like we'll never see victory over a certain sin, God has not forgotten His children. And He is working. And His Spirit is sustaining us. And we're growing in the knowledge of Jesus Christ, even though it may seem like it's never going to happen, our Savior and King is going to return to heal us and to usher us into His physical presence for all eternity. That's our hope. And our hope is sure because God is sure. Christian, if you're struggling with your current circumstances, remind yourself of who God is. Use a moment from Peter's life to instruct you. When you're suffering or full of doubts or simply overcome with sin, do not take your eyes off Jesus and cling to your Savior. Don't let go. Because even though it may not feel like it, even though you may be tempted to believe that your trials, sufferings, failings, or doubts will overcome you, Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back to rescue us. Cling to that hope. And in verse 9 of our text, Peter brings out another dimension of the colloquialism, referencing a thousand years that he used in verse 8. God transcends time and space. As a quick note, the verse says, one day is as a thousand years. One day is like a thousand years. It doesn't say that a day is a thousand years. This isn't a formula that helps us figure out God's timing. Leading up to 1000 AD, as I mentioned earlier, Christians took verse 8 as a formula and concluded that Jesus was going to return around 1033, about a thousand years after he ascended back to heaven. And for those who are interested in history, the failure of that prediction to come true in the subsequent disappointment and embarrassment helped create the variables that led to the first crusade. I bring that up because meddling in things above our pay grade, so to speak, frequently has negative consequences. And even though over the last 2,000 years, Christians have repeatedly embarrassed themselves by attempting to read the historical tea leaves and proclaim a time frame for Jesus' return, only to be proven wrong, sadly, many of us continue to do so. Trust in the many promises that Jesus is going to return and resist the urge to figure out the specifics of the time frame. Jesus told us that no one knows the hour. But what we do know is that God loves us. And, we looked at last, and what we looked at last week in Psalm 85, God only gives what is good to His children. We, have, we can trust in that promise. An entire book could be written detailing the many negative consequences that have arisen due to Christians attempting to figure out when Jesus is coming back. From the tragic, the founding of a cult in the 1800s, to the somewhat silly, the, the shallowness of the early Christian rock movement of the 70s and 80s. Peter isn't bolstering our faith by giving us clues as to when Jesus is going to return. He's bolstering our faith by reminding us of who God is and that He keeps His promises. And Peter is also encouraging us to be thankful for God's patience. I mean, I I think back over my own life. If the adults when I was a kid had been right and Jesus had returned before I ever went to college, I'd be in hell right now. I'm thankful that the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you. And as we pray, as we pray for the coming day of the Lord, we should also pray that He will save our children and our family members who are on their way to hell. And while we, want, while we long for Jesus to return, we should also long for Him to be patient and wait till they put their trust in Him. And we should note that the antecedent for the "you" in verse nine, those whom not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance, refers to is the church, God's people. With this verse, Peter is thinking of those Christians whose faith is wavering under the influence of the false teachers. This verse extends God's mercy to those who are tempted to succumb to the heresies taught by the false teachers. Peter is saying, Repent and submit to God through faith in Jesus. Look, throughout this letter, Peter has been asserting that Jesus is going to return to judge the wicked. And that should raise the question Am I counted among the wicked? I mean, we're all sinners. We all stand guilty before the throne of God. Thankfully, in His mercy, God has provided a way for sinners to be saved from their sin and reconciled to Him. Leaving His throne in heaven, Jesus came to earth, lived a life of perfect obedience to God the Father, and then died on the cross for the just punishment of the sins of those who repent and place their faith in Him. Three days later, Jesus rose from the grave vindicating His claim to be the Son of God. If you repent of your sins and place your faith in Jesus, you're given new life in Christ. His perfect obedience is accounted to you. And your sins are accounted to Jesus and His death on the cross covers the punishment owed. Being in Christ means that you are no longer counted among the wicked deserving God's eternal wrath. Repent and place your faith in Jesus today. Don't presume on God's patience. Because, and make no mistake, even as he writes about God's patience, Peter also explains in verse 10, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Don't assume that God's patience means that He's unwilling to act. Christ's return is imminent. As in, it could happen at any moment. So repent and believe in Jesus. If you have any questions about what that means, please find me after the service. I, I'd love to talk to you more about what it means to follow Jesus through faith. As opposed to what the false teachers claim, Jesus is coming back and sinners will be judged. And while we may confess with our voice that we believe in Jesus' imminent return, often the way we live confesses otherwise. And this brings us to our final point. Remember to live holy lives. Please follow along as I read verses 11-13. through 13. And many of us here love sermon application, and the sermon application is live holy lives. One theologian points out, Peter does not engage in speculation about the timing of forthcoming eschatological events. He rather sees the final events of the world described above as motivation for Christian conduct. Often when we focus on attempting to discern the specifics about the final day of the Lord, we lose focus on the motivation to live holy lives in the here and now. And Peter wrote 2 Peter to motivate us to pursue holiness now while we live. And he's already done this. Look back at 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 4-5. through 5. In verse 4 he writes, By which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. He follows that up in verse 5 with, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. And then he gives us this list of characteristics found in a holy life. I want us to see a thematic parallel that Peter set up in the beginning of his letter and then brings home with a resounding force as he concludes his letter. Between chapter 1 and chapter 3, Peter has a through line of action that deepens both interpretive ends of it. In chapter 1, Peter tells us that through the salvation won by Jesus... Those who are his have been rescued from the corruption that is in this world because of sinful desires. As he concludes his letter, Peter again stresses the need to flee sin because the destruction of the ungodly is sure. Sin is destructive. Go home and reread Genesis to remind yourself of the corruption that is sown throughout this world because of sin. Or, or reread Judges, or 1 and 2 Kings, or 1st and 2 Chronicles, or Jeremiah. Atheists are starting to wake up to this. There's been a spate of recent articles written by atheists bemoaning the amount of moral decay within the atheist community. Although Nietzsche predicted this, and before him, Dostoevsky told the world what would happen if atheism prevailed, and he knew that because he had read the Bible. Suicides are up 25% in this country. More people are enslaved and abused in our modern world than at any time in history. And make no mistake, we can't point the finger at developing countries and claim that things like human bondage and sex trafficking are their fault. Sex trafficking exists because of the sinful, corrupting appetites of the West. Sin destroys. It destroys the world around us and it rots us from the inside. Peter states the obvious and then pleads with us to pursue holiness through the power of the Holy Spirit. We have been freed from the bondage of sin and given new life. We should live like it. At the end of chapter 2, Peter uses the graphic imagery of a dog returning to its own vomit to describe those who have tasted of the freedom found in Christ who then continue in their sin. now, Now back to our text for this morning. In verse 11, after emphatically asserting that Jesus is coming back to judge the wicked, Peter asks a question. There should be a question mark after what sort of people ought you to be. And that question about what kind of lives we should live as followers of Jesus is predicated on the fact that all these things are thus to be dissolved. In fact, the Greek is actually in the present tense. As in, all these things are being dissolved. From the verses we looked at earlier, we know that the specific events he's referencing are in the future. They haven't happened yet. But with the use of the present tense, Peter is doing two things. One, he's reiterating that the final day of the Lord is certain. It's so certain, we may as well talk about it in the present tense. Two, he's also connected the destruction of the cosmos, God's judgment on the wicked, God's coming judgment on the wicked with the present corruption currently wreaking destructive havoc in the world. Through faith in Christ, we're we're escaping from the one, which means we're going to escape from the other. You see, and we're going to look at this in verse 13, but, but God's creation was not intended to look the way it does, to be the way it is. The pain and suffering in this world are consequences of sin. If Jesus tarries, all of our bodies are going to break down and die. But those who are repenting of their sins and placing their faith in Jesus have a future hope. The resurrection when Jesus returns. But that future hope doesn't let us off the hook to live however we want. In fact, Peter says that the certain future return of Jesus is the reason why we shouldn't live however we want. We should live in a manner that pleases God, out of thankfulness. Lives of holiness and godliness. Because the through line of action in Second Peter tells us that we have escaped the corruption through Jesus. Why would we go back? Brothers and sisters in Christ, we need to go forward to life. Jesus is saving us and will fully and, willfully and finally save us on that final day. Pursuing holiness and godliness is a visible demonstration that that's happening. Brothers and sisters in Christ, by your life, do you confess that you believe that Jesus is coming back? that you've been rescued from the corruption? Do you live in a manner that prioritizes pursuing holiness and godliness? Or do you live in a manner that still clings, however slightly, to some of your old corruption? What are your habits like? What, what dominates your thought life? What is your weekly schedule centered on? Is it Jesus? At the beginning of this letter, Peter emphasized that living a holy and godly life gives evidence that you are Christ's. On the flip side, the hard truth is that if your life is characterized by ungodliness and lack of holy living, you may be giving evidence that you are not Christ's and that you are under God's wrath. In that instance, the return of Jesus will not be a joy for you. But here in chapter 3, Peter provides another reason why we are to live holy and godly lives. In verse 12, Peter continues his claim, waiting for and hastening the coming day of, of God the waiting for makes sense right i think we get that we're called to trust god and demonstrate our faith by well faithfully waiting while we live holy and godly lives for god's glory but what about that the the words and hastening the coming day of god look this is a hard phrase and i'm most likely not going to satisfy everyone's questions or concerns by god's grace i'll do my best So some some attempt to interpret hastening the coming by folding it back into the word waiting. As in, we're supposed to be diligently preparing for the imminent return of Jesus as we wait for His return. But that requires ignoring the natural sense of the verb hastening. The NIV translates it, speed its coming. It's the same verb that Jesus uses when He commands Zacchaeus to hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. In Luke 19.5. Peter is clearly saying here that by living godly lives, Christians hasten the coming of Jesus. And this is not a new teaching. In fact, in Acts 3 verses 19-20, through 20, Peter says something similar. So Acts 3 verses 19-20. through 20. Repent therefore and turn again that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that He may send the Christ appointed for you. In the Lord's prayer, Jesus teaches us to pray, your kingdom come. So Peter's statement here in 3.12 should not surprise us. But I think for many of us it does. It it hits our ears and minds weirdly because it seems to contradict what we believe about God's total sovereignty. God has sovereignly decreed when Jesus will return. And yet Peter says that God's people living godly lives hastens the coming of the Lord. James 5.16 tells us that the prayer of a righteous person has great, great power. Verse 17 tells us that Elijah prayed that it wouldn't rain, and it didn't rain. Then, three and a half years later, he prayed that it would rain, and it rained. You probably don't remember, but way back in February, when I preached the first sermon in this series, I said, In our human limitations, we frequently puzzle over the tension between God's sovereignty and humans' responsibility. Except the Bible doesn't acknowledge any tension, we read tension back into the text. The Bible, like here in 2 Peter, simply states that God is sovereign over everything and that humans have a responsibility to obey God, including repenting of our sins and placing our faith in Jesus. And God expects us to submit to what He's chosen to reveal. Namely, pertaining to this discussion, we are to submit to the divine revelation that God is sovereign and we are responsible before God for our actions. And that statement applies here. Peter doesn't address the tension. And he doesn't need to because we don't need to figure it out in order to submit and obey. And that's the question we need to confront ourselves with whenever we come across hard statements like here in verse 12. Am I going to submit to God and obey? Or am I going to allow my pride to convince me that I need to figure this out before I submit to God and obey? And Peter doesn't spend any time explaining it because the correct answer is submit and obey. He simply admonishes us to live godly and holy lives. And Peter quickly moves into stating, the because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are awaiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Again, Peter contradicts the false teachers by telling us that Jesus is coming back, and the wicked will be judged. But this time he mentions the glorious promise of the new heavens, and the new earth although Jesus will rain down righteous judgment on the corrupted world and those who are unrighteous we have the promise that God will renew the cosmos where his children will dwell for all eternity this past winter at the woman's retreat the, the ladies discussed the solidity of the promised new heavens and new earth and by solidity I mean the material material reality of what's to come we're not being saved to an ethereal incorporeal existence We're being saved to an existence of worshipping, praising, working, and enjoying God's good gifts in the way God intended when He created the material world and all that is in it. God will again declare His creation good. And those who are trusting in Jesus will be part of that. Sin will no longer have a foothold in our heart. Death will no longer exist and threaten us. Our relationships with each other will be whole. And most importantly, our relationship with God will be perfect and sweet. No more doubts, no more fears, no more struggles. And we have this promise because the new heavens and the new earth will be filled with God's righteousness. We see that in verse 13. The glory and beauty of God will fill the new heavens and the new earth. And only those who have inherited God's promises through their union with Christ through faith will enjoy God's blessings for all eternity. So, so Christian, hear, as we conclude, hear what Peter is imploring. Look ahead with hope to the final day of the Lord. On that day, you'll be healed. And more importantly, you'll physically be in the presence of your King and Savior, Jesus Christ. You'll have all of eternity to rejoice in what God has done for you and to enjoy His blessings. And as you look ahead to that final day, allow your joyful hope to compel you to a life of thankful obedience for how Jesus is saving you from the corruption of this world. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, be committed to pursuing holiness and godliness for God's glory. Let's pray. Father, thank You that our hope is sure. Thank You that through the obedience of Jesus, You have saved us from the corruption of this world and will eternally save us on the final day when our King returns. Please cause us to desire to live lives that bring You glory. Give us the grace to pursue holiness and godliness. And Father, if there is anyone here this morning who has yet to taste of Your saving grace, please give them the gift of repentance and faith in Jesus and adopt them into Your family. And we ask all this in the name of Your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.